If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, you can download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Wiser Wednesday Experience Speaks, a podcast that discusses the improvement of physician engagement and physician documentation habits by focusing on the core aspects of clinical documentation integrity. Here is the creator and founder of Core CDI, the co-founder of Top Gun Audit School, and your host of this podcast, Glenn Krause. Hello, everyone. This is Glenn Krause from Wiser Wednesday Experience Speaks. And I'm really happy and privileged today to have Melissa Rodriguez, uh, CCS, CCSP, CDIP, CPMA. That's a lot of uh, credentials to maintain. She works for Salem Health Hospitals and Clinic. This is a 494-bed acute care facility, one of the largest of 62 acute hospitals in the state of Oregon. Her role is that of educator for both the coding and CDI team. She works in clinical validation denials, a very busy area nowadays, and she deals with varying audit functions such as queries and coding. She strives to continually educate herself and her team on the latest coding and clinical validation guidance. And we know that coding and clinical validation are a hot topic today because payers are becoming very aggressive at refuting diagnosis and coding in the interest of saving money. Since her time with Salem Health, she has helped implement a query policy and a regular audit schedule of queries from both the coding and CDI team. She has implemented a denials tracking method that highlights our high-risk areas with solutions to minimize risk. On a personal level, she's an avid motorcyclist and a kayaker. And uh, Melissa, I love kayaking. Well, what's your favorite river to kayak over there? Um, we haven't done yet rivers yet. Um, my favorite lake, though, has been Waldo Lake. Oh, is that how many? Is that is that overrun with uh, what do you call it, jet skis and, and so forth? That's why I love it. They prohibit any sort of motorized boats on there. So all you have really is kayakers. You have to be at 10 miles or under. So. You know, not a lot of boaters out there. It's beautiful. Oh, I wish I had the same thing up here in Lake Memphagog. Hey, uh, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And uh, well, very thank you. You're welcome. You're very, I'm very impressed. Tell me about this query policy and a regular audit schedule. It seems like you've done a great job in implementing this query policy and regular audit schedule of queries. Uh, and what are you finding? And what are your thoughts on queries? 
do they drive down these clinical validation denials or what can we do to drive down these denials because I see so many and so many of my colleagues sometimes uh, egregious denials sometimes they're not so tell me a little bit about that yeah that's a lot of uh, to unpack there so I will try and highlight some of the points but uh, when I first started here, you know, I was starting with the clinical validation denials, and I realized as I was going through these that some of the queries weren't really validating the diagnosis. So um, as I was working through these, I spoke with my supervisor, with my manager, and I asked, do we have a query policy in place? Yeah. What do we do if we have an escalation? Um, how do we go back? So there wasn't one in place, so we started to work around that. And then compliance got involved, and they're like, well, hey, if you're doing a policy, we would like to see what are your results? Are, are we compliant? But yeah. we hadn't been doing any of that. So now on a quarterly basis, we pull all queries both right. CDI and coding, mm -hmm. to make sure several things. One, are we asking the right question? Right. It's a necessary query. Is it backed by our standard definition? Because we do have standard definition for certain diagnosis. You know, are some over-querying? What are the responses from the providers? None of this had been tracked prior. So we're starting to, to gather that data now and to establish a baseline. What are our risks? because we had never looked at that before. So how, how's it working? Is it, are you finding that uh, the query volumes are going down with compliant queries and uh, physician education, that the queries are going down, or is the queries about the same? And even if we have a compliant query uh, and we're seeking additional information, whether, and whether it's a clinical validation query for the diagnosis, sepsis is a big one nowadays, mm -hmm. Are payers still winning? Are payers still coming after the hospital? Like I said, about 10 colleagues, uh, C uh, director, uh, leadership, leadership positions in CDI, even though we have a compliant query with uh, good clinical indicators, we're still getting, they're still getting denials. Yeah, and a lot of the issues around, especially around sepsis, is the fact that no one can agree on what criteria to use, right? Even the physicians, they're like, well, I use sepsis too, and someone like sepsis three. Well, all payers recognize that there is this confusion or there isn't a um, consensus, yeah. and they use that to their advantage. So they're going with sepsis three, which is a lot more stringent, so it makes it a lot tougher. But um, just as we had been speaking of before, we have to look at a chart like a book. You know, are, when we're reading the story of this patient in the hospital, are, is the story being told by the physician coherent when we write that query? Or are we just writing cliff notes to what our perception of the story is, not really truly representing a picture? So we have to ask ourselves that when we're looking at a clinical validation query. Yeah. Or are we just cherry picking, well, there's high, um, you know, uh, white blood cell count or they have a high heart rate. But if we look at the entire story, is there another condition that could be attributed to those clinical indicators? Yeah, I, I'm finding the same thing. I'm finding the same thing. It's really would you would you say this is a reasonable statement? There's more to clinical validation than the clinical indicators. Yes. Is that problematic in the industry? What are your thoughts? 
I, I totally agree. I think we kind of forget to look at the fine print. You know, with sepsis, it's a systemic response to, uh, to an infection. It, it can be localized. But, you know, one of the things that it says in there is after everything else has been ruled out, right? <laughs> so are we ruling out those things when we're looking at that chart? If they have multiple conditions that could be driving those indicators, is it truly sepsis? Or, you know, same with other conditions. You know, are those indicators truly pointing to that picture um, for that patient? Yeah, and that's what I'm finding as well. It's like, okay, I had one the other day, okay, that was query for sepsis, and I'm not calling out the CDI, but you definitely mentioned something important that all CDI professionals need to hear. The doctor wrote sepsis with acute encephalopathy. The constitutional physical exam said patients sitting on the edge of their bed just finished eating their double cheeseburger with french fries, uh, resting comfortably with no complaints. No. <laughs> Have you seen something like that so out of touch with reality? Or do you think that's a problem? Or are we, is the CDI avoiding or not looking at the entire picture and just honing in on the clinical indicators? Yeah, I believe that that is a big problem, and I have seen things like that where they say they're alert and oriented times three, but they're saying acute encephalopathy. They're they're stating how the patient talked to them and they had a conversation, but nowhere in their notes or nurse's notes indicates that they were in an acute altered condition. Um, So how can we support acute encephalopathy? You can't. (laughs) Right. Um, and, you know, I had one person, actually, when I went back to CDI about this very thing, they're like, well, they always say that in their physical exam. And I'm like, but that's why we should clarify that. I think it's just a force of habit. When you have a drop-down menu, to, uh, AO times three and no distress. This will be helpful, I think, and I want to get your thoughts. So I had denial the other day for acute respiratory failure. And I had a, and I had a denial uh, last week working in a hospital where the uh, case manager was not able to uh, negotiate additional days. And this is where CDI, I want to see what you think, if this is a reasonable approach. So patient came in an acute respiratory failure clearly in the ED. Unfortunately, it wasn't called as such. And then the CDI person saw that and queried the physician for acute respiratory failure uh, he hadn't signed the, the H&P, which is a really important document which, uh, that CDI must take advantage of improvement because that's the segue for medical necessity. And the doctor said, right. patient resting comfortably in bed. This is constitutional physical exam. Alert only times three and no recurrent distress. Now, when, it, when you see a diagnosis that the doctor added, so it was obviously uh, before he signed, so you don't have to do an addendum. It said acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. If you looked at the constitutional, you'd probably get the same uh, assumption I did that the patient wasn't acute respiratory failure. The same picture that the reviewer for the insurance company, outside reviewer, came to the conclusion. So to me, it'd be helpful. What are your thoughts? If the CDI person mentioned or teach the physician, the, what are the mitigating circumstances of why the patient, patient is not in acute respiratory affray right now? And it turns out this patient was on five liters of oxygen non-rebreather. So as a clinical validation specialist looks seeing the denials, would that be helpful to, uh, to an appeal? Yeah, and I would also look at 
Um, what was the patient's baseline at the time of discharge? Were there any doc uh, documentation about the patient's O2 dependency at time of admission? Um, what was happening in the ED or en route? Uh, does the ED documentation also support that? Does it say they were in shortness of breath and then they gave them O2? Say they were O2 dependent two liters and they had increased it to six and then they were okay in SATs and then they dropped down or took them off and then they had to increase it again because their saturation dropped down to 79%. So, you know, are we looking at this entire picture, which is, I believe, what you are trying to get at, are we only looking at this one note with this one thing that seems to support what our idea of what is happening, or are we looking at everything? Because we have so many people documenting in the record, but That's it should all I, tell the same story. To me, and let me know what you think, do you think that sometimes CDI as a whole becomes too focused on getting that CC or MCC and writing the compliant query because of time crunch, because we have these KPIs that drive task-based activities so we, can, so we can perform well based on how we get rated? Do they lose the opportunity to think holistically and look at the entire chart? I believe that you are correct. I think that is a problem. I think that this drive towards productivity and this drive to show CDI's return on investment to the C-suite kind of shoots the CDI program in the, in the foot because it loses the focus of what our job is, which is documentation integrity is really showing the true picture of the patient. And you know the utopia is that if we show the true patient story, then the rest will come in. But sometimes <laughs> that may actually not be true. And if that CMI drops because we're actually doing what we're supposed to be doing, um, then there's that question and that pressure. So I could see where CDI individuals would be like, well, my CMI has to be this certain amount. And then that can inhibit the growth in the growth of CDI, we're trying to get to this other place, and it just kind of hurts that, that growth process. Absolutely. And you see my post on LinkedIn, and my responses on the HEMA listserv is that I am really working hard to make a compelling case, to make an argument that CDI must review the record holistically and look at the entire picture. And I'm, not, I'm talking globally, not individually at, at each program. I believe, I'm not sure how you feel, but the KPIs are, I think, in my mind, preventing us from advancing our scope of practice. We're too, we're too wrapped up in KPIs, number of charts reviewed, number of queries left. That doesn't leave any time to review the record and do education with our physicians. <laughs> this is true, and if you don't have an engaged physician advisor or if you even have a physician advisor, or if you don't have an engaged C-suite in actually improving those measures, yeah. it makes it very difficult to try and kind of transcend. Um, and, and I just want to make a note that just focusing on CCs and MCCs can actually be detrimental to the CDI program. Uh, how do you reckon? Well, because I believe that providers start to see the CDI program as just the money makers or the money grabbers, and they're not interested in the patients. And so if we can lose physician engagement when all we're asking for is for things that increase the reimbursement. And that doesn't help the patient in the end. 
because isn't that what we're all in it for, right? Would you say that there's too much of a focus on getting a home run with the case mix index, and we, and we should be focusing more on improving the communication of care to the yes. extent that the record speaks for itself, and would that drive down a lot of these unnecessary validation denials, DRG downgrades, and unnecessary medical necessity denials, and level of care downgrades? Is that, is that based on your experience, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, I truly agree with that. And I think that once that, is, that floor is set, I think it reduces uh, targets for auditors for that facility because they're, uh, after doing reviews and seeing that everything is truly validated and showing the picture of the patient, the documentation is complete, they back off. But if they notice that there is an opportunity, I believe they have a ticker file somewhere where they say, hey, this hospital, go after this hospital. Yeah, but, but, but I really think, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that if you focus on the documentation, the money will come with it. And, uh, I agree. and clinical validation denials, you know, I, I think I told you before our podcast here that I uh, posted, or uh, Ernie uh, De Los Santos, who had, uh, he's the founder of Top Gun, and I'm a co-founder of Top Gun Audit School, and uh, he posted something on LinkedIn about clinic uh, denials and queries. Uh, he had over 3,000 people look at his post, and you should have seen some of the comments. They were all over us. They were, I made a comment about denials, denials increase when we have clinical validation denials increase when we have more queries. And you should have seen it, leaders and CDI telling me I'm wrong, and I don't think I have it wrong because I, I see the aftermath of the queries. I see the aftermath of going for a home run. Rather than get paid uh, with revenue preservation, meaning optimize the documentation. Would you say this is a correct statement? If you optimize the documentation from the standpoint of telling the patient's story, describing, telling, showing, and reflecting in the H&P the patient's true severity and, and medical predictability of an adverse event, and what are my suspicions and concerns, and what am I doing about it, would we have as many denials? No, we wouldn't. We really wouldn't because there wouldn't be anything for the auditor to pick apart. Would you say that we should be thinking like an auditor? Uh, let yes. me give you a case. Oh, yes. that, that, <laughs> that I do believe. Let, let, me, let me ask you a question, a couple of questions in closing here, okay? So tell okay. me, based on your experience, it's deep experience and your experience at, the, at Salem Health, what is the most important message you want CDI and professionals who are, and revenue cycle professionals who are listening to this podcast, what would that message be? Before you submit that question, make yeah. sure you have all your ducks in a row regarding what's happening with that patient up until that point. What are the diagnostics that they're waiting for? Are you submitting that query beforehand, before that result is coming in, so you may get an answer that may not be reflected in the chart? So look at your timing. Look at your... Um, What's happening with the patient, could those indicators actually be attributed to a different cause? Sometimes that is documented in the chart by the MD. They're linking it to a different cause. They're not saying it's sepsis. So we want to make sure that we're looking at the entire picture before we're submitting the query. Um, sometimes those queries are necessary, but we just want to make sure that we are accurately asking a question 
that may have been missed in that chart that will tell that story. That oh, yeah. And so does, does that go back on this last question? And this is a great one. I really appreciate your time. Getting away from the KPIs and really looking at denials, would that be helpful in, in changing CDI's outlook? Do you think CDI people get, do they get feedback on denials at your facility? Does your CDI people receive feedback? Do you meet with the CDI team? Yes, we do. As a matter of fact, I do a monthly education for both CDI and the inpatient coders. It targets what our denials are, what our highest denials are, how yeah. much, what we've had to accept because it wasn't clinically validated. I also, on an individual level, when we've had to accept a denial because we couldn't validate it and as an appeal, because there wasn't anything to appeal in the record, I indicate that to both the coroner and the CDI that was on the case. And I give them a copy of the denial letter so that they can see for themselves what it is that we are receiving and what, what they're reviewing in a chart. Oh, this is wonderful. It sounds like you're really running a great, you're really adding value to CDI. And this is so important. Holistic viewpoint of chart review, making sure the patient patient story is well told, not just the clinical indicators, being sure that there's no inconsistent information in the chart that gives the auditors an outside edge to hang their hat onto, and, mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, making sure they're consensus-driven documentation. One doctor may call it sepsis, uh, you query, and the next doctor calls it UTI. And that's, that's a recipe for validation denial. Am I correct? Oh, yes. <laughs> Especially when it's you have like, those changes. <laughs> not, and do you, do you see that in your practice as well? Do you see instances where we query? You know, I call it drop, grab, and run. Drop a query, <laughs> grab the diagnosis, and run to our software to score a victory. Meanwhile, we, at the back end, we don't go back to the chart to ensure consistency, and that gives ammunition. Am I, do you see that in your practice? Yes, and, and that is one of the key points that reviewers will target in denials. They will say, well, it was documented, and it might have been, but we didn't see consistency carry through, or we saw where one physician documented this, and then this other physician documented that, and we didn't see a clarification. You know, we have to think, are we closing out, are we closing out any loopholes when we're reviewing the chart? And that goes back is to that question. Right, that goes back to the last thing. If we got judged based on how many charts we review, that does not leave us much time to go back to ensure clear, accurate, concise, consistent, contextually correct, consensus mm -hmm. documentation, and that comes back to haunt us. Yes, it does. All right, well, you keep up the great work at your facility. It's been a real pleasure having you on the Wiser Wednesdays Experience Speaks. And just so people know, I'm working with a physician colleague who's a, uh, very well involved with the Emory University Medical School. She's an instructor and works with the residents. And she and I are going to be doing a Wiser Wednesdays Physician Edition coming up shortly. So you want to look out for that. Uh, there's quite a few Wiser Wednesdays Experience Speaks uh, that we've recorded in the past. You can go to iTunes and whatever your podcast favorite is and you'll see it on there. You can go to the TopGunAuditSchool.com website. If you haven't been, 
please check it out. There's quite a few resources that CDI can use, and I have a lot of articles and resources on core-cdi.com. So, Melissa, thank you so much for participating. You've been wonderful, and you, everyone, have a great day. Thank you for listening. Glenn Krauss can be found on LinkedIn. Make sure to subscribe to Wiser Wednesday Experience Speaks on Anchor.fm or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to also visit core-cdi.com for CDI and Revenue Cycle Consulting Services and topgunauditschool.com, a coaching service for hospital and clinicians. This podcast was produced by medicalcodinggeek.com. Medicalcodinggeek.com